right? Like, I mean, <laughs> if you're playing, you know, like a My Little Pony game, then probably just decapitating, you know, someone's PC pony is not the way to go. Probably not. Yeah, you don't you don't want to be that part of the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> Live from behind the Mundangerous GM screen in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 241 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're slaying the dragons of a bygone era as we discuss adversarial GMs. But first, the party gets an unwanted gift in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the troll hunter slays the worst kinds in the Character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is the official digital toolset and game companion for Dungeons & Dragons. You can use D&D Beyond to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures, and do so much more. And there's a lot of awesome content for free like the D&D Basic Rules, articles from writers like James J. Heck, and awesome videos from people like Todd Kenrick. So, Ishan, we had a session last night that was entirely enabled by D&D Beyond. Uh, tell me about it because I was not there because for some reason everybody decided that we would play on a different night this week. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so we had sort of our climactic, you know, arc ending boss battle in which we had to kill a sorcerer king and its phylactery in the same like round in order to successfully like defeat him. Uh, and his phylactery was, of course, a living simulacrum of him. So we had two teams fighting in two places, two sets of character sheets, two full parties. We all had to manage both. The GM had to manage both. We had one initiative order. We're bouncing back and forth between these two maps making all these decisions could not have done it without D&D Beyond we would have just been flipping through notebooks like crazy were you pulling up your own characters on like phone and tablet so that you could have two of them side by side uh for that one I brought a laptop but yeah that's what <laughs> that's what that's what people were doing was like we have it in you know one tab of my browser and the other tab of my browser like flip between the sheets as we go right because it's a situation where you think oh I'll just have two character sheets printed out side by side except that this is 5e so Every character sheet is multiple pages or, you know, if you're a spellcaster, a ream of paper. (laughs) Yeah, magic items, spells, all that stuff, all just like one tap away. Like, could not have done this without D&D Beyond. Uh, Did you succeed? We did succeed. He's dead. Is anyone else dead? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But more about that later. (laughs) So if that is good, if that sounds interesting, you can check it out at dndbeyond.com. So never let it be said that we do not live up to our promises, but it is all your fault, dear listeners, because several of you rallied together to push us over the $300 mark on Patreon. You fools. Like, <laughs> this is this is the Discord <laughs> pushing its agenda, forcing us to give a Forgotten Realms episode. Yep, that is the $300 level reward. Uh, we're going to record a review of the Forgotten Realms campaign setting, which, which we both love. We love so much. Uh-huh. It's my favorite. I can't wait to do this. This won't hurt at all. I'm very excited about it. I know a lot about it already, so I won't have to do tons of research. I definitely know everything there is to know about Forgotten Realms. I'm basically the world's f- second foremost uh, Forgotten Realms expert behind, of course, Ed Greenwood. Right. Who is a pillar of great <laughs> writing and thought. 
I love that Forgotten Realms uh, isn't wacky or silly, and so we can just play this one straight. Yeah, no, and a cool thing about it is how, like, there's so many just, you know, narrative-shaping events that undermine your stories so that you don't have to worry about what you did because they fixed it for you. I'm looking forward to not having to lampshade any ridiculousness in an entire episode. This one writes itself. My personal favorite part is how there's like basically no racist colonial undertones in any part of Forgotten Realms. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to a treatise on the spell plague, <laughs> how to retcon an entire setting and make it stick. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, that will be coming out, I think, our first episode in April. Uh, it's going to take us a little while to get that one ready, but we uh, we will do that for you in a timely fashion as promised. Oh, it's, uh, it's turning along. We're going to get there. And uh, and thank you to everyone who increased their pledge or has just been you know continuing to uh, to support us on Patreon each each month. That's been uh, fantastic. It's enabled us to do this show, so uh, we're we're happy to do this to give back. It's a it's a cool objective. I'm glad that we hit it. Yes, we are continually surprised at your support, but always uh, continually thankful and grateful. Exactly. So let's move on to the Gates of Morning campaign. So the Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in central Karnath, in the insular city of Vedekir, the party is chasing a killer. So the Kalashtar Vesakad finally arrives in Vedekir. His lightning rail was delayed for an entire day by peasant riots against King Caius III of Karnath, who is apparently as uncaring as his namesake, his grandfather... King Caius the first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, weird how that worked. Almost identically uncaring, you might say. <laughs> it's it, there's a direct through line. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Vesicod is a Kalishtar, and he meets the rest of us at the Marrow's Mead Tavern um, as we return from our rendezvous with Lauren Davis, the unnerving young girl who seems to be the real power center uh, behind the mysterious noble house Davis. And who is, of course, actually a 3,000-year-old lich. Right. So the party retires to the rooms upstairs to catch up with Vesicod, filling him in on everything that's happened in the last day. He notes that because he's a Kalashtar, he does not dream, so he hasn't been experiencing any of these visions or terrible nightmares that some of the others have been suffering from. It's at that point that Thule, the innkeeper, knocks on the door and announces that they have a guest downstairs. Turns out, Inspector Sigor wants to see them. Not wanting to ignore a summons from the police, they head downstairs, and the beak-nosed Carnathy is waiting at the bar, standing next to an untouched glass of ale, which apparently the innkeeper has presumptuously poured for him uh, as he walked in. And Sigor can't hide his surprise at seeing that we are in good health uh, after our foretold visit to House Davis. He also informs the party that a weird thing happened last night. It turns out several hundred people in the warehouse district fell victim to a mysterious virulent plague, and by morning, all of them were dead. Uh, The party denies any knowledge of this incident, which of course they know occurred very shortly after they had a battle with the undead monster Cien in the same area and then burned the corpse. <laughs> to be clear, he did ask us if we knew anything about it. It wasn't like, oh, that's a weird plague. We had nothing to do with it, of course, but like that sounds real <laughs> bad. But it wasn't us. <laughs> 
Right. That was after he was like, do you know anything about this? You got into town yesterday. <laughs> so Sigur also has a gift for us. The dead body of Ephraim Diorian, uh, just resting at peace in a simple pine box and waiting outside. Because, of course, the party are the only acquaintances of Ephraim's on record. So they are now responsible for his body, according to, I guess, Carnathy Law. Uh-huh. Of course, it's unlikely that any cemetery in town is going to allow them to bury an Ondarian soldier, given that uh, Ondare and Carnath were enemies in the war just two years ago. But hey, that's the party's problem now. So with that, Inspector Sigor takes his leave. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are going to talk about uh, sort of a vestigial organ of the RPG community, adversarial GMs. Is it that vestigial, really, though? Uh, It should be. (laughs) (laughs) It's like your appendix, you know, every once in a while it flares up, got to go to the hospital and cut it out. Yeah, but everyone everyone starts with it, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, we're just going to spend the next half hour talking about uh, how to terrorize your players. Exactly. So (laughs) let's start with what is an adversarial GM? What do we mean when we use that term? I I would say as broadly as possible, adversarial GMs think that the GM and the players are opposed in a zero-sum game. So if the players have fun, it's at the GM's expense. If the players win, it's at the GM's expense. And kind of vice versa, the way for a GM to have fun is to make the players suffer. Right. Um, So this is one of those things, like we call it vestigial because it's rooted back in the very early days of RPGs, right? Like this is your wargaming becomes chainmail, becomes D&D, becomes fantasy heartbreakers for a decade. Yeah, and this this makes sense. Like these grew out of war games, right? And war games like Chainmail originally grew out of like military strategy war games at war colleges where you were actually trying to figure out if your strategy was going to work. So the person you were playing against or the person sort of running the game who was playing the environment or whatever was actively trying to make sure that you failed so that you knew if, you know, your plan to send thousands of people into battle was actually going to work you were you were like actively trying to red team the situation to make sure that there were no holes in the strategy yeah so for decades (laughs) rpg modules and books and and game systems gave really bad gm advice that sets that adversarial tone they say things like don't let your players do this or don't let them get away with it or um you know like don't let them walk all over you right there was uh there's that old trope of like don't touch the gm's pizza that system mastery is so fond of spotting in books what this means of course is that we have generations of gamers who have grown up uh, looking at all these books learning how to play with these books it's like uh it's like baby boomers who went to high school learning about all the terrible things that socialism does Uh and now we just need to wait for them to die off before we can actually have any good things right (laughs) so of course the issue here is just wait 20 more years and then all the kids who grew up on monster hearts will be the ones running the show and we'll have a different kind of nightmare but the problem is those books haven't gone away, you know? <laughs> like people still, still circulating. dig those things up and right, read PDFs them. PDFs are a thing. <laughs> like it's terrible. So I think there there's a there's a point here that like this was not 
this was not born out of malice, right? Like the idea of the adversarial GM didn't come from like, oh no, screw the players. This isn't about having fun. It was a different kind of fun. And then I also think like games at the time lacked like the technology for collaboration in the way that we do it today, right? That sort of like more modern framework of game, like a Monster Hearts, right? Like, and we didn't have like this normalization of culture from the internet that like, told people in a game store in Des Moines, Iowa, and in a comic book shop in Boston that you were supposed to play this way. Yeah, I mean, at the time, the adversarial setup for a game was, I I guess, kind of safer, you know? Um, If you didn't necessarily have a group that you were playing with all the time who were already friends in real life, if you just showed up to, I don't know, a comic book shop or or like a, a games workshop as a person who wanted to either run or play a game you had no idea who you were going to be sitting across the table from so you didn't know that they were necessarily going to care about your fun Mm -hmm. so why not just only focus on your own fun if i'm a player i want to win if i'm a gm i want to win yeah and you got to remember these games like were very complicated compared to a lot of modern games like the prep work required to run these games effectively uh was significant right like you couldn't just quickly pull down a couple monsters into an encounter and run it quite as easily as you can today. Like there's a lot of esoteric rules to keep track of and to prepare for and and different things on character sheets and all this stuff that like, it was just more difficult. So sometimes you have to protect your prep work by being a little adversarial. Yeah, or your property, right? Like most of the times you, the GM would be the one showing up with the case full of minis or the one mm-hmm. who had made all the terrain and then was hosting and it was your basement and you had basically sequestered an entire room for the gaming and everyone else is kind of leeching off you. Mm-hmm. Is it unfair to expect that maybe people will bring a few bags of Doritos for you? Right. And only you? <laughs> maybe just let you have your GM's pizza. <laughs> Uh, and, and of course, we didn't have any examples for positive play. And, and I think, I mean, that happens with any sort of hobby that is new. Um, we're still, you know, the community is learning the ropes, uh, figuring out like what works best and how to become more inclusive and, and make people more comfortable at the table. That that just makes sense. You're seeing that now with, you know, streaming and online gaming, right? Yeah, I think that's been interesting just since we started this show, right? Like, when we started, we kind of had this weird thing where it was like, we can talk about our campaign, but like, no one is really going to know what it's like to be at our table, right? Like, there, there was, it was just sort of inaccessible in, you know, 20, what, 14 or 15, whenever it was. And then now, like, we play a game online, you know, like we streamed it for everybody to watch. People see what our table looks like. And the people who play in our home game are on the discord channel and telling stories about the game that we just played or telling story about the game that is currently happening because of course everyone's on their phones during the the session. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I think like part of it too, is that problem players were therefore more common, right? Mm -hmm. Like we hadn't normalized behavior on the player side either. So there were definitely the type of player who would come to the game just to throw wrenches at the GM's planning and like try to derail a session, right? Try to undermine a story because that's how they had their fun. And we hadn't really like normalized and policed that out of play yet. Yeah, if your experience of a communal activity was basically intramural softball, then you show up here and think, oh, okay, we're a team and you're a team and great, we're going to play to win. And, you know, me winning means you lose, but that's fine because like tomorrow we play another game and maybe the teams are different. Right. No no big deal. We're not playing one game for five years. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
so fortunately, like I think we've moved past that, or we're ready to move past that. It is um, fine to move past that. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about maybe some some attitudes, or like what does an adversarial GM think, and what do they do? Uh, first and foremost, for me, adversarial GMs are often no fan of the players or their PCs. Mm-hmm. They that it's that me versus them attitude, right? Um, and and this can manifest itself. I think the PCs often lack like the primacy of the story. You know, you you get this idea that like the PCs aren't special. The story isn't about them. The plot or the world exists whether they do something or not. Yeah, you're playing in the GM's novel. Uh, and and the uh big bad and the protagonists are moving through the world and just don't get in their way this also means that it doesn't matter if the players characters die deaths that have absolutely no meaning because they weren't integral to the story to begin with yeah so sometimes you see those deaths are like a form of punishment you know you did a thing that I didn't like you went in a direction that you should not have. Um, Or sometimes just like, Hey, sorry, it's a hard encounter and the dice are random. LOL. You're dead. Shane. I think I just realized that uh, the goddess of magic in forgotten realms has to be a PC in a game run by an adversarial GM. (laughs) I'm uh, I'm the goddess of magic. Yeah, cool. Uh, You're not a protagonist though. So you're dead again. (laughs) I'm going to be the goddess of magic again. Cool. All right. Um, spell plague. Yeah, step one, geek the mage. (laughs) (laughs) Adversarial GMs also limit player agency. This kind of goes hand in hand with not really being a part of the story. They can't affect the story by making important decisions. Sometimes this manifests itself as just plain old railroading. The GM is, is pretty commonly going to be explaining why the character's can't actually do something or can't affect the outcome. This is just happening to you. Or wouldn't do something, right? Oh no, your character wouldn't do that because reasons that are important to me. Sea elves would never do that. (laughs) Right, not in my setting. Not in this setting, our setting, (laughs) where all of you live. Um, And then the the hallmark of this is then punishing those players for trying to do things anyway, right? So this uh, this is where rocks fall, you die comes from. Yeah, there's a certain kind of GM who doesn't even tell you, hey, you wouldn't do that or you can't do that. They just let you do that. And then, you know, it's your fault that uh, the door was locked anyway or that you're thrown in jail or that the guards kill you all. Right. Um, and then also, I think there's a there's a big element of like eliminating the rule of cool. Right. The idea that like if a player wants to do something that's cool, you let it happen or you you help make it happen, even if it might bend the rule a little bit or require a loose interpretation like cool let them do the fun thing like we're here to have fun um and the one i always think of is like you know you have the player who wants to grab the chandelier swing across the room and dramatically stab the bad guy with the rapier and the dm goes cool that's a dc 20 acrobatics check and the player goes fine i'll walk like I got there, it cost me nothing, we ended up in the same place, I still stabbed him with my rapier, you just made me have less of a cool moment for nothing. Yeah, I, th- I think the flip side of this is you have a, a GM who is not only not a fan of the players, but maybe is too much of a fan of the monsters, the mm-hmm. enemies, 
right? You're, I think we have all been there sitting there going, oh, I built a really cool monster. Oh, wow, that's a really neat ability. Um, and then thinking, oh, no, they're being killed too fast and I don't have time to use that really cool ability. But you know what? The players are doing something awesome and amazing. That is your story too. Right, right. right. We are all telling one story here at, at the table. Like, as a GM, my story is not the monster story. <laughs> There's there's that GM thing where it's like, oh no, my monster was weak. The the party thinks I'm an idiot for giving them an, a, a too easy boss fight or whatever. And then at the on the flip side of the table, the players are just like wiping their brow and like, we got away with that one. Thank goodness things fell our way. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. I know that would have been bad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, how many times in a debrief has it been like, oh man, you guys really like just like steamroll that encounter, and then the players are like, uh, really. I had yeah. three hit points. Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't keep track of all that uh, when you, you know, you're on different sides of the screen. At the same time, though, like sometimes you have players who can sort of bring this on themselves where if they do steamroll an encounter, they're like, what a dumb monster. This was, this was so lame. I can't believe that was so easy. I didn't even take any damage and I didn't even spend any spell slots. Like, don't make your GM feel bad for like not murdering you (laughs) yeah no i've never seen that player like i've never seen the player who taunts the gm for an encounter being too easy oh really interesting (laughs) i no i just i i've never seen that so like i i get the fear of that as the gm right like there's that loss aversion like instinct but like i've just never actually seen that manifest itself at the table it's just like cool you like crumpled up my boss and threw him in the trash like that sucks for me. But the players are never just like, oh, gotcha, you suck at GMing. I don't know. Have you ever played in the basement of a comic book shop? No, I have oh, not. okay. Well, <laughs> that might be why. I, okay, fine. In the past <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> also, GMs, it's great if you have to crumple up that, uh, that character sheet and throw it in the garbage. Don't crumple it up. Just save it. That means that you don't need to rebuild a new monster because those cool abilities, they're going to show up on something else. Yeah, just just <laughs> go ahead and just double the hit points. <laughs> It'll show up later. Uh, another thing that I think uh, adversarial GMs often get caught in is they become like toy collectors, you know, in that like you want to have all of the things, but you want them on the shelf to be pretty and to look at, but definitely not to play with. I think we're talking here uh, not necessarily about like physical objects, but things like the the setting or the meta plot of the story that you're trying to tell. You have every splat book about your favorite setting and you have carefully placed it on the shelf and you've read the entire thing and you know every little tidbit of knowledge and you have an entire wiki that you've sent out to the players. And now you've built this china shop where the players can't touch anything. Right. Because, well, then it changes the world and then it changes your knowledge because you're not correct about it necessarily anymore your encyclopedic knowledge has been destroyed look what they have done by playing in my beautiful sandbox where everything was neat and level and now they're building castles and digging holes and what's happening right exactly it's like uh (laughs) like by virtue of existing in the world they are rejecting the premise that you knew everything you build these like the spider web of like plot hooks and fate and and the weave and then play, when players walk through it they break those strands and all those strands stick to them and that's what's supposed to be happening oh that's a good metaphor i haven't heard that one before i just made it up yeah i that also is how i feel as a player sometimes is that i'm literally walking headfirst into spider webs <laughs> leave <laughs> a message in my mouth and i hate them <laughs> 
Uh, that's my least favorite thing about the Forgotten Realms, actually. It's the drow. <laughs> the drow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then there is also a type of adversarial GM who loves the enforced futility that they can inflict on the game and players. You can just watch them bang their heads against whatever wall you ten- you decide to throw up, whether it's hordes of orcs or a magic door that they just can't unstick. Yeah, like this is, yeah, unwittable combat, unsolvable puzzle, insurmountable barrier, right? Like no matter what you do, you've reached a dead end for the story and you have to go backwards. Yeah, and I think we're not talking about times where you're like, hey, you've kind of reached the edge of the map. Maybe like go back to the other side because I don't have anything over here. It's the, there was the one place for you to go. This is where you have to go. I put a door here because I like that there's a door here, but you can't open it. Don't go that way. Right. Or the door opens up to nothing, right? Like you've pursued this as far as it can go and as far as it can go is nowhere. Right. The UHF DM. Oh, you chose that door? There's nothing inside it, dummy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and the reason this is bad, right, is like the, the feeling of just having to backtrack is like wasting time, right? So like we spent a session or two going this far and then the whole point was to say, no, you can't do this anymore. So go back to where you're, where you belong. Like it, it just strips the players of their agency. And then also like really questions some verisimilitude stuff. Like, why did you put this here? If there was nothing to do with it? Right. Why did this path exist in the first place? Yeah. And, and, and you run into this thing where like, maybe it's a TPK that ends it or like, maybe it's just like, cool. We have to retreat or, you know, whatever this puzzle has defeated us. And now we're, we're stuck. Like instead, like failure can be an option and you move the plot forward through that failure, right? Like you lose the fight because it was unwinnable. And now the story has progressed with the fact that you lost the fight is a different feeling for the players. than you can't win this. Just go back to where you're safe. Hey, we had an entire episode on failing forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they built an entire game around it. It's called Apocalypse World. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm sure that there are people listening right now who have run games who are sort of yelling at your radio. I don't know, I'm an old man. I don't know how you listen to this thing. Who are saying, wait, I do those things, but I'm a fan of the players. I'm not an adversarial GM. And you know what? Maybe that's true because not every single thing that we mentioned necessarily means that you are a bad GM and that you're fighting the players. Adversarial GM, not bad GM. (laughs) Okay, you are a bad GM. (laughs) Okay. But don't worry, everyone is. Yeah, so a a couple uh, red herrings for the adversarial GM. I think a lot of times deadly GMs get a bad rep. The idea that killing characters makes you like inherently anti-narrative or inherently anti-player, I think that's kind of a bad take. Uh, It's, of course, like dependent on your tone and your setting and the buy-in of your players. But like, there's nothing inherently wrong about the story for a character ending and the story for the remainder continuing after having to process that loss and and figure out how to move forward. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with a character dying when maybe the player of that character wasn't necessarily ready for it, right? Especially if you've sort of set the right tone at the beginning or made it clear that this is something, a potential consequence for adventuring in the world, right? Like, I mean, if you're playing a, you know, like a My Little Pony game, then probably just decapitating, you know, someone's PC pony is not the way to go. Probably not. 
Yeah, but you, but don't, maybe, you don't want to be know, that maybe. part of the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of ways to go about facilitating character death, let's say, that actually do make for a good story um, and that can either be done as a partnership between player and GM or can just be one tool in the GM's toolbox that has been agreed upon uh, on the outset before embarking on this kind of story. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I mean, to, to <laughs> piggyback on what we were talking about kind of at the top, like, oh, in Dark Sun, our characters went and tried to murder a Sorcerer King. We know that Sorcerer Kings have power word kill, so there was a good chance that somebody was going to die and maybe multiple people were going to die just from that. Yeah, there's a good chance that someone was going to die in round one, because why wouldn't you open with power word kill? Well, because of Counterspell. <laughs> <laughs> right, because that's what happened to the, the first Sorcerer King that we uh, killed. And in round one, he was like, uh, power would kill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, another sort of red herring for adversarial GMs is problem players, right? Like, it is, I think, a very natural reaction for GMs to become more adversarial when their players are also being problematic when they're engaging in premise rejection, when they're not picking up plot hooks, when they're, um, you know, metagaming extensively or, or, or otherwise just trying to derail the game um, in a way that causes chaos and doesn't enhance narrative. Like, yeah, I, I understand becoming a little adversarial about that. Yeah, I think if you look at, you know, any two parties who are sort of engaged in a conflict uh, where they're trying to one up the other or, or punish the other, you can always sort of trace it back to... I don't know who started it. It may not necessarily be the person who's retaliating at this particular moment. Ah, yes. Players and GMs like the Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> you killed my pig. That was my familiar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was my polymorph pappy. My pa gave me that. I will say in these, in this instance, though, the GM is the one who has the power at the table, right? So if you want to set a tone it is incumbent upon the GM to be like, hey, maybe we don't need to be on opposite sides, right? Like, oh no, you ruined my encounter. That's fine. Like, I there's never a time when I don't have control of the story or I don't have agency uh, or like I I have permanently lost uh, a character, right? I have infinite characters. Mm -hmm. uh, it it can feel more personal on the player's side. So. You know, if you're if you found yourself sort of ending up in this rut where you're battling with your party, just back up for a second and, and like give them some wins. I mean, not even like give them some wins. Let them have some wins. Yeah. And, and then if you have a player who is truly problematic and is disruptive, like this is a social contract issue. Mm -hmm. So it's always going to be better to talk to that player above the table, not try to handle, you know, out of game problems in game. Um, but recognizing like especially the origin of the adversarial GM, like that wasn't always possible. Um, either a player doesn't take the advice or you can't move forward by removing that player or whatever. You know, maybe this group of people exists outside of the game and therefore you can't just get rid of somebody. Like, you know, sometimes you need to, I don't know, be be tactful in how you handle these things, right? Like it's it's not as simple as just, hey, if you talk about it, the problem goes away. Yeah, anytime at the table where you're thinking, oh, I have to do this either to the players or to make sure that a story happens in this particular way because of what these other people are doing, that's almost always going to be an above the table 
issue that needs to be handled outside of the game. Like, even if the problems are being expressed on the player side in the game, the way to handle them is not also in the game. It's to just pull it up above the table and talk about it so that they are not inserting issues into the game in the first place. Right. So that segues nicely into what you can do as a player if you think your GM is adversarial. Just touch their pizza all the time, every single time. <laughs> just, if you take a slice of pizza and you fold it in half and then take a bite out of the middle and then put it back in the box, yeah, you have a perfect circle formed with your teeth right in the middle of the slice. And that is how you express dominance. I thought it was to cough on their pizza and sneeze in their mouth. Uh, we live in a coronavirus world right now. I mean, hey, <laughs> adversarial. Oh, speaking of adversarial, actually, that reminds me. Thanks for making us do a uh, Forgotten Realms episode where we have to get together in the same room in the middle of a coronavirus epidemic. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, they're, Thanks. They're trying to kill us. Yes, I know. Actively trying to kill us. I appreciate that. All right. So if your GM is adversarial, uh, as a player, the best thing you could do is talk to them about it, mm -hmm. which sucks. But seriously, just... <laughs> talk to them it <laughs> like, sucks so much explain the things that you are seeing that are difficult for you and try to understand like why they're doing those things okay so if you don't want to talk to them um figure out how to talk to them uh-huh <laughs> that's the backup plan send an email <laughs> and i think we've talked about this before just in general like good game etiquette but it's really good to try to get your group into a habit of debriefing after sessions. Whether and that doesn't need to be like a, a post mortem on on the session or, or on the campaign or someone's gaming or GMing style, right? It can just be, oh my god, the thing that I love so much about that session was, or it was so cool when you did this thing, whether that's another player or the GM, because you're giving positive reinforcement to things that actually happened. You're sort of training each other into being the kind of player that this particular table is interested in having right and that works really well with the gm too like so many times you put in all this work and all this prep and all this effort and you are focused for the entire like four to six hour session and it is exhausting and then everyone's like hey cool that was awesome high fives for the the smite crit uh and we're gonna go home and no one's like that was a super cool monster or like man i can't believe that like we we got through that puzzle yeah, did you write that riddle yourself? If not, well stolen. Um, and then the other thing you can do is, you know, maybe if you have a different style of GMing is offer to GM, right? Not in an adversarial, I can do it better than you way, but just to like give that person a chance to play and then also a chance to see how maybe there's a different way of running things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether that's in a different system or, or whatever, right? Like, show them that it can be fun to you know maybe have a more collaborative play style than they're maybe naturally inclined or have been trained to perform yeah and if you suspect that maybe you know you are this kind of gm then take a step down for a second not even step down like take a break give yourself a little bit of time off practice letting go of the reins and actually like enjoying this game as a player it'll make you a better gm no matter what right even if you are not adversarial seeing it from the other side helps you to figure out what is interesting for a player uh, and also you know it just means that there are going to be more gms in the world which makes the whole hobby healthier yeah what you should not do is send them a, a link to critical role and tell them to be more like matt mercer oh dear lord i i 
have heard that this has happened to people. I've never seen it in real life, and I hope I never do. Yeah, that is a that is a surefire way to trigger some loss aversion behavior. Yeah. <laughs> like, no one wants to be shown up, okay? <laughs> All right, so I know for a fact that we both have some history as adversarial GMs, Ishan, because we are of the correct age to have done it. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, that's what you did, right? And, you, I mean, you had adversarial players, too. Like, the whole point when you were, I guess, a 14-year-old boy was to, like, show up and, like, you know, murder some some goblins and then like take weird trophies and then, you know, bail, bailful polymorph everybody else once you had that, that spell because, you know, suck it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times it was adversarial player on player that the, the GM is trying to stop. But yeah, I mean, when, when you first like crack open, let's just say a PHB, right? Because that's most people's entries into like RPGs in general. It's all combat stats. Mm-hmm. Um, why would you not think that these are the tools that you're supposed to use and if you leverage them against the players then that is what makes for a fun game because the book seems to be telling you that's what you're supposed to do I mean you know assuming that you're not reading more current DMGs which are actually would actually have pretty good gaming advice yeah more narrative forward gaming advice rather than sort of uh, combat management gaming advice right and then even when you understand hey I want to be a fan of the players. It is. It takes experience and practice to figure out how to put that into play. How to like show up at a table and run a session where it feels like you really are a, a fan of the players. Because I, I think more than maybe your average player, a GM is also often a fan of the system mm-hmm. and wants to see all the fiddly bits work and like wants to watch things happen in play and wants to use the cool monster abilities and wants to bring out like the amazing awesome like red dragon maxi mini but also that's probably going to murder the entire party <laughs> right yeah I, I i know that like even even more recently like i have had sessions with our group where i felt that i was getting kind of adversarial mostly because i had an idea of of what was going to sort of move us forward and and had a place that we needed to get to and we like as a group weren't necessarily moving towards coherent objectives anymore you know it's it's that moment where it was like okay cool we had all agreed that we were focused on this thing and then we came in the next week and now we want to go in three other directions and it's like no come on we've already taken six steps down this path we're not going to just go back and relitigate everything yeah i want to be really clear here that like there there isn't a person who is an adversarial GM and then a person who isn't. There isn't even someone who is adversarial in this particular session because I'm having a bad day. It ebbs and flows throughout a session. Like the third hour of a session, I am just in general more adversarial or have more adversarial tendencies than right at the beginning of a session where everything is bright and rosy and I'm hopeful. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But like three drinks in after the third tangent of like some video playing on someone's phone. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of feel like you want to be like, um, take 86 damage. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome back. (laughs) Are you paying attention now? Cool. (laughs) Um, I I know I did this in the uh, Dynasty and Warranty campaign um, just very early on when you investigated uh, an Imperial ship for salvage and found Dark Eldar on board. 
Um, I knew that you were going to start in prison. Like that was the whole campaign arc was you starting and having to break out from Eldar captivity. Um, and yet it got very, well, not very, but somewhat adversarial in your attempts to escape the Dark Eldar uh, and, and, and refusal to just get arrested, basically. <laughs> like, you know, like, who cares that you're kilometers away from your ship, <laughs> like, have no possible way of defeating all of them in your current position? You're still insisting on doing that. And I'm like, guys, you can't win. Like, just take the L and let's move on. The story is meant to go this way. It's fine. And and it is fine to have those plot points in a, a game if they're not constant, right? Like, hey, this cutscene is, is going to happen and I just sort of need to get you there so that we can move the plot forward. And hey, there's a minor bit of railroading, but please just get on board with this at this particular moment. Right. The adventure we're starting with needs to get you from where you were <laughs> to the beginning of the adventure. Like, right. Just take it. <laughs> just keep in mind that the like, players... I mean, if it has, if it doesn't sink in, if you are not very explicit in that moment, sometimes you get into a situation where people are like, "Oh, the goal here is to avoid jail. Don't get arrested." So right. we're going to do every single thing in our power not to get arrested, even though the game doesn't really even start until we get arrested. Exactly. <laughs> like I'm going to murder 13 people and get myself hanged. <laughs> I did this same thing actually. Like I would probably say maybe the worst session of Morning Glory was when um all of you were like back in time in Seer, like in Metrol on the day of morning and you meet Nistrum Shadar and he doesn't know who you guys are and you do know who he is and you guys are like we try to murder him. And I'm like but but you know he's like a a twenty third level Rakshasa, right, guys, right? And you're like, yeah, we do, and we're gonna murder him. And I was like, oh god damn it! And and rather, I really should have just been like, cool, he overpowers you, hand wave, you know, because that doesn't feel adversarial. It feels like, hey, we're moving the story forward. Like you wake up in jail, right? We like I played out the session where he just beat you all into the ground. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, jokes on you because a year later we would summon him into a pit of acid. <laughs> it's very, I mean, I mean that's how he salvaged it later was like, well, at least you got to see all of his abilities and now you know what to prepare for, I guess. I'm sorry and not none of us can get those 3 hours back. <laughs> but you live you learn, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, it's the time traveling Hitler thing if you can time travel you are morally obligated to try and kill the architect of the holocaust that's right and history tells us he was history tells us that you will fail and yet you still try you're morally obligated to try so we had to yep if you find yourself in the 30s in germany you know how you're gonna die it's trying to kill hitler exactly and on that note (laughs) (laughs) do you hear that ishan uh, no, I, I couldn't. It was muffled by the sound of this huge desk. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it's time to move on to the character creation forge, roll up another time traveler, and hunt down Hitler once more. <laughs> but before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. You can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. And join the conversation on Discord where you control us by joining the Patreon and forcing us to do Forgotten Realms episodes. I mean, at $500, we have to run a game with your mom, Shane. Uh, bad news, it's $400. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Oh no! Oh, crap. <laughs> that's, that's much closer than it appears. That's terrible. I mean, she's lovely. It's gonna be terrible. <laughs> Total Party Thrill is also brought to you this week by Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press are the makers of the Tome of Beasts, the Midgard campaign setting, and Deep Magic, and now they are putting out dark fantasy fifth edition content on a monthly basis through the Warlock Patreon. Get it, Warlock Patron? Eh? Patreon? Eh? Patron? Yeah, eh? yeah. Hmm? Huh? So. You can get player options, monsters, magic items, and more for as little as $1 a month. But for $3 a month, you can get awesome Warlock Lairs, short adventures by some of the industry's best writers, like DSPN's own Celeste Conowich. And for $5, you can get the zine in print each issue. And you'll want that for these new Halfling zine covers. I miss like physical media. Um, it's been a really long time since, you know, I, I had my hands on like, you know, Dragon Magazine and what, well, Scry, you know? Dungeon Magazine, yeah. nerd. <laughs> there was just something about, you know, I, I never actually got them like mailed to me. I would go to the comic book shop and like pick up a, a copy and like leaf through them. But um, it was always a, a cool way to discover like new writers and new art, especially. Um, and then new ideas, because you're just sort of sitting around being like, I guess I'll read this. I wasn't planning to read this. I didn't Google for this, but, you know, here it is, and why not? Yeah, but, I mean, for $5 a month, you can get it in print sent to you each month, not unlike a subscription to <laughs> one of those old magazines, you know? I mean, they probably ran $5 on the cover price, right? And, I mean, given inflation, hey, it's much cheaper now. Exactly. All right, so you can find out more at patreon.com slash press and tell them. DSPN sent you. All right. This week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Troll Hunter. Pyromancer. Done. Uh, yeah. I mean, let's be honest here. <laughs> There's an element to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the issue with uh, Wizard 20 Evoker fo- focused on uh, fire magic. It's that uh, trolls also have very sharp claws. Oh, That's a good point. So we're going to deal with that. Uh, of course, to face trolls, uh, you need some form of fire or acid damage because that overcomes their regeneration ability. Everyone knows this. All right. So then, what's the build? Forge Cleric 17, Monster Slayer Ranger 3. I'm glad to see some Ranger in here. I know we I always mean, we always you know bag pretty hard on Ranger, but I'm just, I'm just glad it's here. Uh, yeah, I know. Sometimes you got to make compromises in power for flavor. All right, so from Ranger, we're getting, of course, favorite enemy giants, which is nice because it's not just trolls. You know, there are all kinds of terrible, massive scourges, ettins, gross, right, hill giants, <laughs> ugh. The the other ones are fine. The other ones are fine. Natural natural explorer, what mountains? Probably. I mean, I guess ask your GM where trolls live in this setting because I guess trolls live everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, so we were, <laughs> even in prepping this, I was like, where are trolls? And you're like, mountains. I'm like, but then caves, but then under bridges, but then swamps. <laughs> Turns out they're tagged for every terrain in, in the book. So anywhere you want to be, trolls, they're everywhere you don't want them to be. <laughs> Just like the internet. Ah, you beat me to it. At second level, you'll get a uh, fighting style. We'll take defense for an extra plus one AC while wearing uh, armor. And you'll get spellcasting. We're really here for Hunter's Mark. And then, of course, Searing Smite, which is the smite ability that adds fire damage. 
your monster slayer ability will let you cast protection from good and evil. You never know um, what will actually be controlling a troll or maybe what kind of weird magic your strangely fey afflicted troll has gotten its hand on, hands on. And then Hunter's Sense, you'll be able to discern the immunities, resistances, and vulnerabilities of a creature that you can see. This is very important because one of AGM's most favorite tricks is to swap out the vulnerability or the immunity of a particular creature. And suddenly, it's not fire that will kill your troll, but cold damage for some unknown reason. Right. Uh, Arctic trolls, my guy. Uh, but then you'll also get Slayer's Prey. Uh, once per short rest, as a bonus action, you can target a creature that will take an extra 1d6 damage on the first hit against them each uh, on each of your turns. This is basically your discount Hunter's Mark, which, of course, stacks with Hunter's Mark. From Forge Cleric, <laughs> you get ninth level spells, so you can probably handle those trolls and then, I don't know, graduate to something worse, right? Fiendish trolls, I guess. Right. Uh, you will also get, as a domain spell, Searing Smite, which means it's always prepared for you, uh, which means you'll be able to throw in that fire damage whenever you face trolls and not a moment sooner. Right, it's just drop that bonus action. My blade is now on fire. I attack. Right. You get heavy armor proficiency. With Blessings of the Forge, you'll be able to choose between plus one armor or plus one weapon after a long rest. Uh, your second level channel divinity is Artisan's Blessing. That lets you recreate an object that you have seen. And you'll get resistance to fire and plus one AC when you're wearing that heavy armor. My favorite thing about the resistance to fire is that, look, if you're ever surrounded by trolls, just set the whole place on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, we, what we really love about this at eighth level for Divine Strike, you're adding 1d8 fire damage to your attacks. Normally, you'd prefer it was Radiant, but in this case, Fire is great, uh, and that increases to 2d8 at 14th level. And then at 10th level, you get a chance to use your Divine Intervention, which, look, in a pinch is, please let this troll stay dead. (laughs) (laughs) Then at 17th level, you become the Saint of Forge and Fire. You'll gain Fire Immunity and Resistance to Non-Magical Bludgeoning, Piercing, and Slashing Damage while in Heavy Armor. You will note that trolls tend to do non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. Also, you should just live in a fire. I mean, yes. It's the only place that's safe. <laughs> it's the only way you can be sure. Right. They'll never touch you here. Burn the whole world down. <laughs> uh, in terms of leveling order, um, for flavor, I think it's fine to start Ranger 3 and then take all of your Cleric levels. I guess technically it's safer as a troll hunter to start with Cleric 1 because then you can um, have your Searing Smite to deal with trolls from the beginning, but it's not too big of a cost. So, Ishan, uh, who is your troll hunter? My troll hunter is a small town blacksmith, or at least she was back in the day. You know, she liked to build things with her hands, would uh, keep the town uh, in stock of horseshoes and nails and, you know, helped to use her other skills to build a barn, really enjoyed that craft. But of course, down from the mountains, because that's where trolls live. Sometimes late at night would come the trolls who, if you think about it, like there are all different kinds of of giants, but trolls specifically like to eat raw meat and smash things. And when they smash things, sometimes they hope that there are smaller things inside made of raw meat that they can eat. So 
she would spend all this time building this barn and then only to watch the, the trolls smash it down and then leave. And there was nothing that she could do about it, nothing anyone could do about it to stop them because, of course, they just regrow even if you chop off their heads. Except, of course, her tools, her branding tools, her blacksmith's weapons. Uh, there she was standing at the forge with all the fire that she needed. And this, of course, was the inspiration to go out and rid the entire world of trolls. Uh, it's Dark Sun. I'm talking Dark Sun. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Aren't trolls dead in Dark Sun, though? Yeah. Yeah. Someone succeeded. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so you've created a Sorcerer King. Yes. I don't remember which one, but I know one of them <laughs> is the Troll neither Slayer. Neither do I, because no one was like, oh, I can't believe you killed all the trolls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, Cleric of the Forge, right? Is that such a far leap from Cleric of, say, the Hearth? Are they not both forged in fire and the warm glow that comes from civilization? I have forged you a boule of bread. Uh, I'll buy that. Okay. All right. So then uh, are trolls not a scourge on the sort of well-formed and established pattern of common social interaction between members of a civilization, of a civilized culture? Uh, trolls are destroying our community sure yeah okay all right i'm on board i'm worried about where this is going but i'm on board right now well the only way to um civilize these trolls is by welcoming them to the hearth so that you can throw their heads into it (laughs) is this this hansel and gretel kill all the trolls is what i'm saying (laughs) i hate them all trolls are terrible (laughs) i will force them to be civilized or they will die in the hearth the symbol of our warm and welcoming society great cool i've got a troll fired pizza oven that i've created (laughs) indeed uh i don't know that's my that's my deal (laughs) sometimes you gotta phone it in for a one shot you know (laughs) some of the yeah some of these characters or hey you know there's a lot of people out there playing wacky wacky games you're welcome (laughs) all right Uh, Before we wrap up, let's take a moment to once again thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And while we are working on the Forgotten Realms campaign uh, episode, keep in mind at the $400 level, you can listen to me and Ishin play a game with my mother, D&D 5th edition actual play with Shane's mom. And hey, if you've got ideas for more rewards, get on the Discord and send them in. We've already got plenty of suggestions, but we could use some more because we also keep nixing them and saying, no, we won't do that. I, I'm open to a $450 level. I, I, I'd be willing to, to put something in there. You know, like if there's a, a show topic or something that we really, everyone really wants us to get covered, we could add that in. What is our sky's the limit? This is ridiculous. It'll never happen. Um, it was four hundred dollars. It was a game with my mother. Right. We need a higher <laughs> one though, because I want our version of the system mastery at three thousand dollars. We'll buy a pig, a uh, micro pig. They didn't say it had to be a micro pig. They just said it needed to be a pig. That's a good point, but it should be a micro pig. <laughs> I'm not buying a micro pig. We already have a cat. That's on you. We are buying no animals. <laughs> yeah, there were, no animals will be harmed in the recording of this podcast. Anyway, we could buy a troll. I'd buy a troll. Uh, like a little troll doll? Sure, with a jewel in its belly. A jewel in its belly and like kind of a big poofy neon hair. I keep stabbing it. It just keeps regenerating. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll think about it. <laughs> you think about it, listeners. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We will be talking about puzzles. And in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the Kundaric Keymaster. Well, that's it for episode 241 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Leave behind the safety of the Humblewood and travel down the Tangrip coast to the Bay of Palouche, home to both the Kingdom of Den and the Serpent Domain. But neither hold the true power of the bay, for that lies in the sea itself and the pirate lords that call her tides their own. The dread pirate Captain Bluebeak, Tiberius Fang, Kin the Bladeless, and Gabrielle Laflore, the self-proclaimed pirate queen. Each one vying for power over the very tides themselves. But do any of them really have what it takes to hold up the legacy of the briny bulldog? Tune in each week to find out if our little crew has what it takes to stand up to the pirates of the blood-soaked waters. Dark Fortunes is available every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Set sail for high seas adventures.